Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Nick Augustine, and I'm your host on this episode of Law Talk Radio, produced by Nick Augustine PR. Our 30-minute weekly guest call-in show covers news and events in law. We also explore various trends in practice management and talk to the experts who help lawyers win. We discuss the important decisions and issues that affect various practice areas, so get in touch and let's tell your story. Partial support for Law Talk Radio comes from show sponsor advertisers. We encourage our friends and colleagues to co-sponsor Law Talk Radio shows. Send me an email for more information on sponsor, feature, plans, and benefits. Nick at NickAugustinePR.com is the email. Again, Nick, N-I-C-K, at NickAugustinePR.com. Don't forget that the on-demand links to all of our episodes and our host station are available at NickAugustinePR.com on our Law Talk radio page that you can find with the link that says on-demand episodes. From there, you'll get to our page where you can find the embedded Law Talk radio player. Today's show is Mortgage Foreclosure with Dan Quaja on Gilbert and New Supreme Court Rules. New Illinois Supreme Court rules take effect on May 1, 2013 that were specifically crafted for mortgage foreclosure as a result of ongoing issues. The new rules follow recent decisions, namely the Gilbert decision and its modifications. Our guest, Dan Quaja, is a mortgage foreclosure defense attorney who's presenting key legal updates. Dan is an attorney at the law at North Legal Services, the law office of Michael J. Robbins in Chicago. Dan manages many of the firm's cases in DuPage County and frequently appears before Judge Gibson and is well known for educating fellow mortgage foreclosure defense attorneys on the Gilbert decision and the new rules and holdings. Dan's extracurricular activities include his work on the board at Cabrini Green Legal Aid in Chicago. As well, Dan is a member of the National Mortgage Servicing Standards Group. He is also an alumnus of the John Marshall Law School and the University of Iowa. Quick uh, 30 thousand-foot view on what we'll talk about today. First, we'll ask for a brief history of the Gilbert case and generally how its holdings affect mortgage foreclosure law. Then we'll talk about the Gilbert opinion as it was recently modified and what updates should mortgage foreclosure lawyers understand. Then after a short break, we'll come back and talk about an introduction to new Supreme Court rules and talk about how the court used Gilbert in drafting the new rules. Then finally, we'll finish out our 30-minute program by talking about mortgage foreclosure attorneys and what they should look at in reading the new rules and uh, a roadmap for uh, rules and updates from Dan. So without further ado, I welcome my guest, Dan Quadra. Thanks, Nick. Uh, just to give the audience a little bit of a background, I'm an attorney at North Legal Services, like you mentioned. Um, I'm practicing right now in actually six counties, so I'm really spreading myself out. I'm in Cook County, DuPage, and Kane County primarily, uh, but I'm also in Lake and McHenry, and sometimes I even travel downstate if the need is required. Um, you know, So it's given me a real opportunity to see how judges are interpreting the different decisions as well as how they generally rule. Um, to give you a little background, though, so people really understand Right now, procedurally, Gilbert's important because the rules are really against the homeowner. Uh, for someone who you know, has a complaint filed against them, the lawsuit is initiated, and let's say a motion for summary judgment has been entered, at that time their rights to the property have been terminated. But they don't have the right to appeal the case yet. In most civil lawsuits, if you lose a motion for summary judgment, you have a right to appeal as of right. Not the case in mortgage foreclosure. In mortgage foreclosure, you have to wait until confirmation judicial sale before you have the right of appeal to the appellate court. What does that mean? That means your property has already been sold. you got 30 days to move out of the property after the confirmation. So two things are probably going in in the homeowner's mind. One, they're probably in financial distress. Two, they're probably like, I have 30 days to get out of my house. Last thing I'm thinking about is appealing a case. 
So what's the what's what happens because of that? I think there's been a real vacuum uh, with appellate decisions in Illinois and mortgage foreclosure. Uh, the process is just very much against the homeowner to get to the appellate court. So when decisions like Gilbert come out or any other opinions that you know at least provide a line of defense for the homeowner, it's important. Um, you know, for those who don't have any familiarity with the Gilbert decision, it's a decision that uh, originated out of the 18th Judicial District. Uh, that's Judge Gibson in DuPage County. And it's a unique case because it deals with the issue of standing. You know, that is whether the plaintiff had the right to foreclose on the property at the time of filing. Now, you know, standing is as old as the Constitution. This isn't, uh, you know, a novel, uh, novel application of law. It's something that's been well established. But here in Illinois, there have been virtually no cases that really deal with this issue. Um, you know, now most homeowners will be aware of when you go and take a loan from a bank, you know, maybe they loan you two, three hundred thousand dollars for the property. They provide you the loan. They have a security interest in your property. Uh, but what essentially happens eight out of ten times is that between the time that they loan you the money till the time the complaint is for, um, initiated in the courts for a lawsuit, the loan has been sold. It's been transferred to someone else. So someone who might come in and say like Bank of America or J.P. Morgan Chase, they may sell their interest down the road. Now, the new plaintiff comes in claiming that they're the holder of the indebtedness, of the holder of your loan, and they have a right to foreclose on your property. Now, the question is, did they acquire that right legally, or is it just something they're stating? This is where homeowners, attorneys, everyone needs to take a very close look at the complaints and the documents to determine um, if what the plaintiff is stating is true, that they are actually the holder of the indebtedness or a mortgagee, as the Illinois mortgage foreclosure law demands. Um, <clears throat> So looking at this Gilbert case that came out recently, the defendant in that case, you know, raised the issue of standing. That is whether the plaintiff had a, a legal right to sue in the case. Uh, and the interesting thing about that case is, is that the case was actually dismissed in the beginning stages, or not the beginning of the stages, but at the motion for summary judgment. The defendant won the case. The plaintiff came and filed a motion to reconsider. The defendant did not appear at that time, so what happened was the um, appellate court went, or not the appellate court, but the lower court went ahead and issued judgment in favor of the plaintiff, Deutsche Bank. Um, now, to give people some background of the facts there, the defendant had taken a loan from WC Mortgage right around 2005. Now, at some time between 2005 and the filing of that lawsuit, the loan had been allegedly sold to the plaintiff, Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank comes in, and they try to sue Mr. Gilbert, contending they're the holder of the debt, and they have a right to foreclose his property. Well, Mr. Gilbert contests that, saying that they don't have standing because there was not an assignment that specifically addressed how that loan had been transferred from Party A to Party B. Um, now, is this making sense, Nick, or am I giving you guys too much information? No, perfect. It's a good background of the facts so people can find mm -hmm. out and really understand where things sometimes can go awry. Everything can be proceeding along, and um, it's, it's good to hear how it really happens. Mm -hmm. And so what happened in this case is the defendant went ahead and appealed to the second district, uh, contending once again that the plaintiff did not have standing. That is, they were not the legal holder of the debt at the time of filing. And to give some people some interesting facts about what happened in that case, when the original complaint was filed, there was no assignment transferring the debt from Party A to Party B. What the plaintiff did, like many banks do, is they went in to amend their complaint to include an assignment after the time of filing. Now, this is 
happens very often at the lower court levels, amending complaints. Often the complaint will be amended, additional endorsements will be placed in the note from vice presidents, presidents, um, additional assignments will be included in that aren't in dated. Not, there's not a specific date letting people know when this transfer occurred. Basically what often is happening here, or it appears to be, the, the banks are trying to cure standing by amending the complaint. And, you know, I should note that this has been freely allowed in the lower courts, uh, that lower courts continue to allow plaintiffs to amend standing through amending the complaint. So they might stick in an additional page called an allonge or an untitled page that shows an endorsement from, you know, a vice president or president saying that the debt has been transferred from party A to party B because you need an endorsement or you need an assignment. Well, in the Gilbert's case, um, that's exactly what happened. The plaintiff went to amend the complaint. They filed, they, they included an additional assignments in the case after the filing had been completed. Um, the, of course, the defendant continued to um, contend that there was no standing. Um, so essentially what happened was the Gilbert's court look at, took a close look at the assignment and they had multiple issues with it, as well as the affidavit that was included for the motion for summary judgment. One of the biggest issues they had was the assignment was undated. Now, this is pretty common practice at the lower court level. An assignment will be included in the amended complaint, but there will be no date, just, you know, the endorsement on behalf of a vice president, a president. And so it not only raises whether the filing was executed after the original complaint or before the original complaint, but it also raises real questions regarding the uh, authenticity of the signatures that are going on these pages. You know, you have someone who files a complaint in 2008, the complaint's amended one, two, three years later, and now you have these endorsements from vice presidents and other things appearing. It's really questionable. Um, so the, and this is where the term robo-signing comes from, where you often have individuals stamping the names of vice presidents and presidents, you know, because more times than not, can we really see a president sitting behind his desk stamping 2,000 documents a day to um, put his endorsement on promissory notes? You know, it probably doesn't sound realistic. Um, but in the uh, appellate case, the... Uh, defendant went and appealed the case, obviously, and this is what uh, the appellate court really looked at and what people need to pay attention to. They really looked into this concept of who has the right to sue. You know, they, they established what the precedent is, that standing must exist at the time of filing, that people either have standing at the time of filing or they do not. And this is very important because when you look at your mortgage documents, do we have assignments? Do we have endorsements? Does a plaintiff have everything that they're supposed to have at the time of filing? Many cases, they do not. They try to cure the issue through amending the complaint, which raises a lot of questions regarding the legitimacy of those documents. Um, in this case, they did go ahead and amend the complaint. They included an assignment uh, after the original filing. Um, they also included an affidavit by um, an individual by the name of Locke. Now, the affidavit essentially attested to when the assignment occurred, but he had no evidentiary foundation to establish this. He hadn't reviewed any records. He wasn't personally aware when the assignment occurred. It was just something he was testing to, basically stating a legal conclusion, but he had no evidence to support when the assignment actually occurred. Um, now, is, is this making sense, do you think, for you in the audience, or would you like you have follow-up questions or additional detail to kind of you know break down the facts and how everything works? Yeah, keep going, keep going. I like the uh, the recitation. You're doing a great job, Dan. Okay. Well, <clears throat> so the the court looked at three things, and one they really pointed to New York law. New York law essentially says that. Um, as well as a couple other cases they cited, that it's a fundamental precept of the law to expect a foreclosing party to have a claimed interest in the note at the time of filing. Now, you know, as you can imagine, with the buying and selling of these loans, 
you know, there's been a lot of sloppy, sloppy managing of these documents and these endorsements. You know, I have two, three student loans, and my loans are constantly being sold. You know why? Because there's a lot of interest that the buying party can make off those loans, and it's really no different from mortgage foreclosure. Often the person you borrowed the loan from is not the person who's foreclosing on you. They've bought the loan. They see a profitable value in taking it. But the question is, have they followed the legal requirements, and do they have a proper assignment? And a lot of times they don't, and this later gets cured later. Um, so Gilbert's is important to finally put a defense there and say, look, you guys have to show an interest in the loan at the time of filing. You can't come back two, three, four months later, a year later, and try to evidence standing before the time of filing. But the the original complaint, or I'm sorry, the um, original Gilbert decision as well as the modified have, you know, some close similarities, but they've also backed off a little bit. Um, you know, I should mention that there's two or three points that I think homeowners should really look to um, when looking at the Gilbert decision. One, they should examine their note. They should examine whether there's any assignments. When a complaint's filed, you're going to have a complaint. You're going to have Exhibit A, which is a mortgage, Exhibit B, which is the note, and potentially an Exhibit C, which is an assignment. But at the bare minimum, Exhibit B, the note, should have an endorsement from the original lender, either in specific or blank, which is what they call bearer paper, to evidence that transfer the assignment. Um, often it's not on there. Sometimes it doesn't show up till later. Um, so the Gilbert Court, you know, you can take two or three things out of there if you're a homeowner to try to defend your case. Uh, for one, show, show a claimed interest in the note. Do they have it or don't they? Do they have a proper assignment? Um, two, you need to look at their affidavits. At the time of motion for summary judgment, um, they need to have an affidavit testifying, you know, the money owed as well as issues regarding the assignment. Often these people that are attesting these affidavits have never personally reviewed the records or seen the records. They're just an employee for potentially the servicer or the company or somebody else, but they're not anyone who's got any real personal knowledge about, you know, who assigned this loan, uh, how much money you owe. And, you know, the Supreme Court rules have moved to strengthen some of these things, but um, there, there's still going to be ongoing issues, I think. Um, but when people are looking at their complaint, they should look for endorsements. They should look to see when the endorsement was assigned. Often these amended complaints will include an additional page with an endorsement. There won't be a specific date when the assignment occurred. Um, it'll just be a page stuck in to transfer the debt. And Gilberts now says, you know, explicitly there should be a, there should be a date of the assignment. There should be some indication for a homeowner to let them know when this assignment occurred. Um, as well as the affidavits, you know, they should take a close look at that to see if the affidavits are based on someone with personal knowledge under Supreme Court Rule 191. Um, they should also consider, um, you know, the new opinion now with Gilbert, which it's it's been modified. Uh, essentially, the you know, I don't know if the appellate court was scared, but they've backed off a little bit, uh, and they essentially continue to stand for the proposition you have to show a claimed interest in the note at the time of filing, but they have backed off and they have put language in there now which seems to suggest that a plaintiff can amend a complaint if there's a date that suggests when the assignment occurred. Mm -hmm. If the plaintiffs continue to amend these complaints without specific information, uh, then the transfer, you know, you have, a, you have a defense there. You have an affirmative defense on standing. Um, now, is, is that all making sense, Nick? Yeah, we're good. It's, you know what? Let's pause quickly for a break and then come back and like talk a little bit about the new Supreme Court rules so our practitioners out there can make some notes. But let's also first talk a little bit more about 
uh, when a homeowner should go talk to an attorney uh, at what point in the process. So we'll be right back. We're going to just kind of pause for a couple of messages. First, I want to let you know that Chicago Now has a new family law column. It's called Friends and Family Law, Real Stories in and Out of Court. I am Nick Augustine, and I'm the author of Friends and Family Law, which is published at Chicago Now's website, owned by the Tribune Company. I interview and write stories about family law and other related matters that affect families. In this column, we share stories about legal issues affecting families in Chicago and all over Illinois. We also learn tips and practice pointers. Uh, attorneys, their staff, as well as our friends and neighbors are all valuable contributors when they have uh, good and valuable information to share with our Chicago Now readers. So do to get in touch and check out Chicago Now Friends in Family Law. Also, a message from the, uh, for the alumni of the John Marshall Law School. John Marshall Law School Alumni Association is hosting the 2013 Freedom Award and Distinguished Service Awards luncheon on May 10th, 2013. This event's year, uh, this year's event, uh, rather, honors those who have served and are serving our this great country, as well as those who help military causes and veterans affairs. We are happy to invite you to join us at this luncheon, and you should uh, contact, for more further information, contact Sherry Berent. She's the Director of Alumni Relations for the John Marshall Law School. Her telephone number, area code 312-427-2737, extension 343. Again, 312-427-2737. Extension 343. You can also email her directly at sberendt at jmls.edu. Again, the alumni of the John Marshall Law School are happy to bring you this year's 2013 Freedom Award and Distinguished Service Award luncheon on May 10, 2013. All right, now back to our show with Dan Quaja. We're talking about the Gilbert case and its effect on new Supreme Court rules. And uh, right before our break, Dan, we're talking a little bit about uh, what homeowners should know and highlighting different things to look for, including claimed interests, uh, affidavits, and endorsements. So, Dan, as people are reviewing their documents, at what point should they go talk to a lawyer? Well, it, it, uh, it automatically determines what their interest is in the case. Do they want to – are they trying to stay in the property – for a year, or are they just trying to cut their losses and sell the property? But really, the minute they're filed with a lawsuit, they should, you know, immediately consult an attorney because an attorney can help, you know, kind of spearhead loss mitigation efforts. Whether it be a loan modification, whether it be a short sale, whether it be just defending the case. Maybe there's a standing issue. Maybe there's not improper endorsements on the note. Um, but there is a number of, you know, things that an attorney can do to help you prepare for the case. Now, we often get many, many clients that walk in having not filed an answer, an appearance. They come in when the case has already been defaulted. You know, many times, you know, we can still defend the case and get involved, but depending on the judge, it may be too late. So what they've essentially done by not consulting an attorney early on is, you know, expedited the case. A default judgment has been entered. Their property is scheduled to sale. And at that point, it's kind of hard to unwind the damage that's already been done. Uh, so the minute you're, you receive a lawsuit, you have, you know, 30 days to file an appearance. Um, you should consider consulting an attorney at that time if, you know, you want to stay in your property for as long as possible or you want to consider other loss mitigation opportunities. Um, so I, I would generally say right away. The, the longer you wait, the more damage that might be done to unwind. All right, very good. All right, let's continue our discussion about Gilbert, and uh, when you're ready and finished with uh, your advice for homeowners, let's talk a little bit about what some practitioners should look for and uh, understanding the new Supreme Court rules. Well, let me just first say with Gilbert, um, 
it has been widely interpreted differently with many of the, the judges at the lower court levels. Um, you know, at times I've won motion for summary judgments. At times they've tried to distinguish the facts of my case from the Gilbert's decision. Um, and, of course, attorneys have tried to, plaintiff attorneys have tried to do their best to say why it does not apply. But I, I think Gilbert stands for the position that you have to have a claimed interest in the note at the time of filing. The um, modified decision has taken a step back seeming to give them a little bit of a leeway to cure that issue um, if they can show a valid assignment with a valid date on it. But in most cases, when you look at amended complaints, look at the documents. Is there a date? Who has signed it? Is this person authorized to sign it? There's a number of steps people should be taking to evaluate these documents. Um, and ultimately, Gilbert's is going to be the beginning of what I think is going to be a long line of decisions, hopefully, as more cases get to the appellate court. Uh, but I do feel that the Supreme Court rules have helped, you know, strengthen the Gilbert's decision. Now, you know, I can't specifically say that the Supreme Court rules are crafted because of Gilbert's. Uh, but what I can say is when you look at some of the language of the Supreme Court rules, you know, it appears that the Gilbert's decision caused a lot of attention, um, even to the point where I think the appellate court backed down on their modified decision, um, so it wasn't so, uh, you know, I guess, um, un inflexible, so to speak, for the plaintiff. But I think it drew a lot of attention. You hear a lot of attorneys and pro se defendants, you know, rattling the words of Gilberts in the courtroom when there's not proper endorsements on the note or there's standing issues. Um, but the Supreme, but so with that being said, when you look at Gilbert and you look at these new rules that have been crafted, you know, almost directly after, uh, specifically Supreme Court Rule 113, 113 now is going to be a great rule for defense counsels. It takes effect May 1st. It has no retroactive effect, meaning you can't apply it to pending cases, unfortunately, because what a mess that would be. Uh, it, it, it's for complaints that were filed after May 1st, but now the Supreme Court Rule 113 demands that you attach all assignments, endorsements, allonges, which is uh, an additional page, um, in their current form at the time of filing. So now Supreme Court 113 puts a defense there. Now, what are going to be the implications? It'll be interesting to see. Will a plaintiff still allow, be allowed to amend a complaint, cure the standing issue, go back to a title company and have you know, additional endorsements placed on the note? It's going to be really interesting to see. Uh, but Supreme Court Rule 113 has now created a buffer. You have to have all the endorsements, the launches, note in its current form. Can a complaint be amended? Well, you know, by this rule, I think you use this and you... Um, bolster it with the Gilbert's decision that their claim interest in the note has not been shown at the time of filing, and you might have yourself a pretty good case. Um, you know, Supreme Court Rule 113 also looks at prove-up affidavits. At the time for motion for summary judgment, uh, a prove-up affidavit has to be attached, um, and the affiant has to um, specifically conform to certain requirements. He has to um, say what computer or records he has relied on um, to determine, you know, the cost owed to the the cost owed by the defendant. He has to look, um, he has to state specifically, and these are shall, not may, he has to specifically state his role with the company, you know. Is he someone who works directly for the company? Is he working for the servicer? But what's his role? How does he have the personal knowledge to be able to testify to these documents? But more importantly, whether he's using books, records, uh, or otherwise, he has to testify to his sources, and he has to testify whether he's custodian these records or he's somehow involved with the business in a different way. Uh, this is going to be important because it's going to give homeowners as well as defense counsels opportunity to, again, attack the affidavit at motion for summary judgment if something doesn't seem right, if people are signing off on things that, you know, may just not have the authority to do so. 
Um, so I think Supreme Court Rule 113 is going to be a nice defense for homeowners. You know, let's make sure these banks are filing complete and correct complaints at the time of filing. You know, if they're not, let's try to get these cases dismissed and force them to refile. 113, you know, none of us know the implications yet, uh, but it does uh, take effect May 1st, so it's going to start to force plaintiffs to, you know, get their act together. Um, going to Supreme Court Rule 114, which is my personal favorite right now, uh, this is the loss mitigation affidavit. Um, what many people do not know right now is people that are in foreclosure, a lot of them qualify for loan modifications. You know, I would dare to say maybe over half. And what that ultimately means is you come to new terms on your loan, you're able to stop the house from being foreclosed on, and you can keep your property. Often, though, what happens with people who try to do the loan modification themselves, filling out the paperwork, the bank rejects it for one reason or another. It's been rejected. But in any case, it's very hard for, you know, the layperson to try to do a loan mod on their own sometimes. And what happens now with this loss mitigation affidavit, uh, Supreme Court Rule 114, also very powerful procedurally, this now requires um, the plaintiff to comply with all the service, all the requirements of the applicable loan. So, for instance, if they qualify for a loan mod, what steps have they taken to consider the defendant for the for the loan mod? Have they evaluated them? Um, what's the status of the evaluation? And you know, did you conf did you approve it or did you deny it? But now there's a number of steps that have to be taken at motion for summary judgment by supporting affidavit to show compliance uh, with the loss mitigation programs. For instance, you know, making home affordable that's one of the more commonly uh, loan modifications people get. You know, many qualify, but for one reason or another, the bank's not considered them or their documents are being rejected because it's, it's a very you know timely process the number of documents that have to be submitted so here we have another opportunity to bolster the defense of the homeowner you know whether you're including it in your answer with affirmative defenses potentially or even at the motion for summary judgment saying look your honor we have a number of programs here that's offered as part of the loan my my client my client qualifies why hasn't he been considered for these things and so, you know, whether it's the defendant raising these or an attorney who's aware of the programs, you know, this is another great rule that's going to help continue to bolster the fight for homeowners. You know, in this first quarter of 2013, foreclosures jumped 36% from last year. You know, Illinois continues to trend upward in mortgage foreclosures. We're one of the league leaders, so to speak. Uh, you know, so these rules are important. Gilbert's is important. And it's a continued fight for the homeowner. It definitely uh, a continued fight, and that fight is one that uh, several people have endured for months and months and months. I've talked to folks whose mortgage foreclosure proceedings started some time ago, and they're still going back and forth with banks full of uh, what seem to be empty promises and uh, a lot of runaround. I really like this Supreme Court Rule 114 concept of helping people stay in the homes. Yeah, I, you know, I can't tell you how many times the clients come back to me and said, you know, the, they lied to me. They said they're going to give me a loan mod over the phone. I mean, these agents, you know, very often, you know, lie to the the homeowner, tell them they're going to get a loan mod, paperwork's in the mail. I've even had situations where they said they've been approved. But, you know, whether I'm representing the client or I'm just watching in the courtroom, uh, I constantly hear people saying that the banks are not doing what they promised me. 
So, you know, we need more accountability. We need more procedural requirements to put them in lockstep. You know, I, I don't think this is the um, going to solve all the problems, you know, which is particularly why my firm has been looking more into appeals because of that vacuum that I told you of, a real absence of an appellate law because of the disadvantage to the homeowners, whether it be because they can't appeal until their house has already been sold or they just don't have the money to appeal. You know, we need to continue to do things to bolster the fight. Um, you know, I'm going to be start working towards appealing more cases, and I, and I hope that the Illinois Supreme Court crafts more rules like these. But these two are a great step. It'll be interesting to see uh, what the implications are and, you know, how the judges react to them. You know, judges are personalities like us all, and they all react very differently. So I think some of them are going to be very strict about the implication of these, and I do think others are going to look at it as an informality, unfortunately. So it'll be interesting well, to I see. Well, I think that what we're, we're going to see, Dan, is also a lot more people who are starting to fight back a little more. Um, I've talked to several people who have been in court and have been denied discovery. Um, one of the individuals was actually an attorney, and the judge didn't realize the person was a lawyer. Once the judge did, the, things started to change, but it, it just goes to show uh, <laughs> um, I hear a lot of complaints, um, and a lot of those complaints are being addressed. Dan, how can people get in touch with you if they are experiencing a mortgage a problem or they have a friend or neighbor who does? Uh, absolutely. Our, our number at the uh, North Legal Services, which I mentioned is a law office of Michael J. Robbins, is 773-235-9300. Um, they can feel free to give us a call anytime to set up an appointment. Um, you know, we not only do the defense of the case, but we're very active with loan modifications. You know, I think our success rate on loan modifications right now is over 80%. So if you're really interested in, protect, in protecting and keeping your house, you know, there's many paths that you can take. And, you know, often these people don't know how to do it on their own. And, you know, I've seen many people try to do these loan modifications on their own, and it's just not working out. So they should get in touch with someone who's got some, you know, significant experience in it. You know, we can put them on a path, hopefully, to either keeping their home or, you know, leaving at a time gracefully where they can set themselves up somewhere else. Perfect. I'm so glad that you're out there to help, and I look forward to talking to you, Dan, about new updates and things as they progress over time. And I want to thank you for your time in joining us today in this episode. Thanks, Nick. Have a great day. Thanks, you too. I'd like to also thanks our, thank our guests for tuning in and remind them that they can visit the newsletter page at nickaugustinepr.com where you can sign up to receive copies of our email updates and article links. Our email contains useful marketing and publicity articles with short descriptions and links to our different radio shows we broadcast throughout the month. We want to also remind people to be kind and share our broadcast links in their social networks. Many people find our shows in their friends' Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn pages. We thank all of you for your support in sharing our programming. Thank you again to our listeners for tuning into this episode of Law Talk Radio, where our shows are programmed to entertain you and with the legal industry professionals, consumers, and guests with the tips and tools and all you can use to be better informed. Again, this is Nick Augustine for Law Talk Radio, and as always, I thank you for your time.